Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. It's really exciting for me to have Kevin Garlington on the show. He's a great friend of the tennis community and I really always enjoy speaking with him. I've had him on um, tennis summits before and he's really a wealth of knowledge and he's exciting uh, new path and in some ways, uh, you know, rekindling of a path. But um, uh, Kevin, really want to welcome you on the show and thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. It's awesome to be here. Awesome to hang out with you again. Uh, we, We always have a good time. So that's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You know, you some people that you interview and talk to and you just feel like it's really fun to to just chat and, and talk about tennis and other things. So that's definitely Kevin. So, um, yeah, I mean, actually, how, how has life been, uh, you know, since I guess last year and, and early this year? How has everything been for you? Pretty good. I, I just give everybody kind of context. I don't know if, um, you know, in, in the last probably four years, really quick summary, and then you come come back and touch up wherever you want to go. Being in Tulsa, Oklahoma, working with a lot of high-end juniors, then probably about three years ago, we moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin to be a part of the EET or Essential Tennis Team. Um, had a really cool experience up there. And then we had this other opportunity that opened up for us to come back to Oklahoma. And that's been phenomenal in the sense of we've got a chance to work with people that really, really want to improve their tennis. And it's just adults that want to kind of come out and go, teach me like feed me, feed me knowledge. (laughs) So that's been super exciting for us. Um, You know, personally, we've been super kind of just excited about just being back in Oklahoma. We had some kind of personal troubles with our son, but I mean, other Mm. than that, he's had uh, found out about a kidney disease when we first got here, but Mm. he's doing good running around, getting into trouble, um, not letting anything stop him. But other than that, we have, uh, we've been really lucky with everything. Yeah. Very nice, Kevin. Yeah. I mean, you, you were with, uh, the essential tennis team, Ian Westerman, obviously uh, a lot of people know about him. Uh, what is one thing that we may not know about Ian that you one know? One thing that you may not know about Ian. Um, <laughs> he is a hardcore introvert. Um, you see him on, um, probably like videos and stuff, but yeah, Ian, Ian is like in, and I am too. It's kind of probably the weirdest thing. I, I joke around and on camera you have this like, Oh, I'm just like, I don't know. I think on camera it's like, because sometimes maybe there's no one around. I'm just like, uh, but definitely we're both introverts, but yeah, he's definitely like, he has his his zone out moments where it's like, Ian, (laughs) where are you at? Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, no, that's cool. I can, but yeah, we, no, I was going to say, yeah, definitely. Um, really cool experience being up there with him. Um, really cool guy. Um, we had, a. uh, I mean, the last three years produced a lot of, a lot of videos. Um, but yeah, I think we learned a lot from, uh, uh, one another about different things on, on, on tennis. So that's, that was really a fun experience. 
and not only myself, my wife, who is also helping with mm-hmm. total tennis domination. Um, now she, which he didn't know, we both worked in kind of uh, junior high development or uh, top high performance uh, for almost whew, like 14 years. Mm. Um, and so when I was doing my videos with total tennis domination, he wasn't actually aware that my wife was like, uh, and so that sparked the whole thing where, you know, if you've ever seen any of the videos where we all three of us work together. So it's, it's very fun, very fun and very interesting because all of our personalities are, are different. And so if you ever see us kind of chatting on like a VIP, they're like, what are they talking about? It's like, I want to work on this. No, you're not going to work on that because we need to work on this. And so it was always funny how we would have maybe different opinions. But in the end, we'd always kind of figure out how to make it mesh together. Yeah, that's it's uh, part of uh, having brilliant minds together. Yeah, I mean, Megan does a great job. And it was funny, too, because I, I just uh, peeped your your channel, uh, Total Tennis Domination, which everybody should check out on YouTube. And uh, I, I saw, like, the first video where you said, hey, you know, we're, we're back and all that. And then, like, somebody oh, yeah. in the comments was like, what? Megan's your wife? <laughs> like, I didn't know about yeah. this for, like, years or no, whatever. That was a running joke for, like, ever where we were ET because we do vid- videos and people didn't know we were married. And then we said it one time, we we're like, you guys are married. And it was, it was just funny. Like, I, I don't know if someone was joking, but it was like, I thought they, they, they were like brother and sister. We're like, oh. like you have the black and white, not turned on or, on the TV or something. It's like, yeah. hello. But you never know. Yeah. A lot of people didn't know we, we were married. And I mean, we worked together in a, a club setting mm. for a long time. And then uh, went up to essential tennis and worked together. Nice. Oh, is that how you met? Like why, like being teaching pros together? Yeah. Yeah. We met at, um, Trent Tucker tennis Academy. We helped kind of, uh, grow that Academy. And then, um, yeah, but after that we moved up to Milwaukee. So yeah. Wow. wow pretty cool, man. Pretty cool. So yeah, I mean, we're going to talk a lot today about, uh, you know, adult development and, uh, some technique and strategy and stuff. But, uh, I was really curious about, you know, how you got into tennis and, and your career trajectory too. I think people can benefit from, from learning, especially, you know, I think I'm impressed by, you know, how quickly you became a a very solid player, uh, despite, uh, your, your, you know, when you started. So we'll get into that too. But, but first off is how did you get into this fantastic sport of tennis? Fantastic sport. It is a wonderful sport. Um, honestly, my mom and my sister wanted to start playing and none of us had ever played. And they're like, we'll pay you a dollar to come out and pick up balls. And so, um, yeah, I, I went out, was picking up balls and let me try. And then we had a family friend that taught tennis and I started this kind of road. I just, it was for fun. And then he said one day, he's like, you know, you can go to college and they'll pay for it. And I was like, what? <laughs> they'll, they'll pay you for me having fun on the tennis court. Um, and then, I was already in love with it, but it's just like, it sparked this thing of me, like constantly, like being on the court, like doing things like practicing. Um, I got my first job at a tennis club so I could save up and buy my rackets, buy ball machines, buy everything, pay for trips, pay for tournaments and stuff. Um, and then it just sparked this thing. Um, I mean, I think secretly we all want to be pro. I wanted to be a pro, but then as you start going down that road, you start seeing as the world opens up and you're like, there's a lot of really good players out there, but I had some really cool experiences that I would never take back. Um, so that's how I got started playing. That's pretty neat, man. Pretty neat. And so, uh, what I was alluding to earlier, uh, a moment ago is that you started, you know, I would say pretty late. I mean, can you tell us about like when you started and how that was like, and you know, how tough it might've been starting at this 
age that you're going to tell us in two seconds? <laughs> <laughs> I started at 13 and I probably didn't play my first tournament until I was 15. Um, I think it was tough, but I didn't know it was tough because I was just like naive and ignorant to like, oh yeah, you just play and you'll get better and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just practiced, practiced, practiced. And I think the tough part know what you don't know you don't know the next level and then you get a little taste of that you're like okay and then don't realize there's another level above that and it keeps going and so um my high school is really competitive in in our state um we were always top three and then so that kind of opened up then i started playing like southern tournaments um so i grew up in alabama um and then that kind of started and then um i went to a small school in um pulaski tennessee for a while before i transferred to or Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I got a scholarship to both of those Mm. um, and just kept kind of progressing, kept improving, kept trying to like, okay, what's the next thing I need to do? What's the next thing I need to uh, figure out how to uh, do, whether it be play singles better, doubles, whatever, what's the next thing? Um, And then after college, I started playing some uh, small level professional tournaments like uh, futures challengers, um, and stuff like that. And then I lived in Spain and played some Spanish nationals and a couple futures in Spain and just really broad my experiences about like, what's really out there. What does it really take? Um, and then I took a lot of that coming back to training, uh, juniors and, and developing players, which was a whole nother kind of beast to learn. But I think the biggest thing is, um, I think for me was the naivete that I didn't understand what I like where the the top of the mountain was. And so I just took it day by day. And I think sometimes when you, you kind of know where you need to go, but you see like, wow, there's a huge gulf. It's like almost like depressing. Like, I don't know if I can do all that, but because I didn't know, <laughs> I just kept going. And even once I started figuring out, it kept going and just do your best and you, you kind of become okay with that. Yeah, that's, that's really great. Um, I mean, that's a brilliant approach to everything in general. It's just like, you know, day by day, instead of like, you know, looking at, you know, how maybe like, oh, I need to lose a hundred pounds. Like I'm not starting. You just like break it down and then just keep going. And yeah, yeah, interesting in your case too, just about not knowing about the ceiling kind of helping you there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Great stuff. So, you know, in regards to your, uh, your, your, college career uh i was wondering like just generally what the experience was like and then maybe like what types of uh improvements did you make to your game because it's really interesting you know you go from like you're 13 you're starting the game to okay you're playing d1 already like in five years uh only of playing tennis and then you go from from oral roberts to then like being able to play like pro circuit tennis and and, and things like that so uh what was the experience like at oral roberts and how did you improve the college tennis is phenomenal um you're with a group of guys that, I mean, you do everything together. You're, you're, you're fighting in the sense of fighting to get better, push each other. Um, wouldn't trade that for the world. Sometimes I'm in communication with a lot. Um, as they've gone through their life, they've had their kids. So that experience is absolutely amazing. Even the experience of Oral Roberts, definitely different um, going there. I didn't know a lot about Oral Roberts when I first went there. I don't know how much you know. But it's, uh, um, I always got this question when I first got my scholarship to Oral Roberts and people were like, are you going to be a preacher? And I remember talking to somebody and I was like, what do you mean? I got a tennis scholarship. I was like, I know, but are you, are you going to like be a preacher? I'm like, uh, no. And so by the third or fourth time I started realizing like, okay, I probably need to do a little bit more research, but it was a really cool experience going there. Um, 
my roommate uh, was my uh, doubles partner. So we really got along. Um, and he's from Guatemala. And so, yeah, just that experience was, it was really cool. And then to give complete context, it was like, I started late, I trained hard. I went to actually a smaller NAIA school uh, first. So it wasn't completely division one and I transferred. And that gave me a lot of experience because at that time, I don't think it's now, at that time, NAIA would allow like basically grown men to come like after they played the pro circuit and come play at other schools. So like we play guys that are like uh, Davis Cup players from like Ecuador or something like just crazy. Yeah. And you like, you walk on the court and you're like, dude, this guy's got a full beard and he looks like he's like 30. <laughs> and I was like 20 or 19 at that time, but cool experience. And it's just like, again, at school, it's like just finding whatever you can to work on and, and, and grinding away with it. And I would just get so caught up in like trying to improve. Sometimes I wouldn't worry about the results as much. Mm, and so... Gosh when I did that enough, it's, it slowly came, but, um, hint, hint for me, probably my biggest growth coach is looking down what other people are doing, which you can then apply to yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that will probably be my biggest kind of, um, growth. And so I coached and then went over to Spain and played. And then I started to see like, okay, I, I kind of get stuff. And it's like, looking back now, I was like, man, I was an idiot on the court. Like, how do I, like my coach used to joke when I was a kid is like, you, would, I, he was like, you would invent ways to lose a match. He was this big, burly, like Ukrainian guy. And he's like, Kevin, you, you, you would invent ways to lose a match. And I was like, oh, but yeah, but I just didn't understand. And it's like, I think that's where my passion is, especially hopefully it comes out through my teaching. It's like to get people to understand in a simple way, because like coming up, it was like, I, I was like, I didn't connect the dots of like what I was trying to do. It's just like hit the ball. And so I think that in itself has helped me become a better player and a better coach. Yeah. Super interesting, you know, substantive question, but also like a tiny uh, step back of like, I was just curious, like, you know, with the, the preacher comment, is that because the Oral Roberts is like, um, is it like it's very religious? Christian school. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Very religious, very Christian. Like, yeah. um, I remember showing up there and it was like quick story. Um, my coach didn't let me know in all the rules and stuff. And so there was like a, a dress code and I was like, what? There's a dress code and like a curfew, <laughs> um, but definitely different if you, if you d- if just didn't know what I was getting myself into. But again, it's one of those things where sometimes being uncomfortable with the situation, not knowing, and then adjusting to it helps you develop that skill of kind of constantly adjust to different situations. Definitely, Kevin. So here's the other follow-up is, uh, you know, you mentioned that uh, kind of no- noting, I guess, other people's skills that you can apply to your game. Uh, you know, so what, what were some of those um, things that you had written down and then implemented in your game that you can remember? That I can remember. Wow. No, it was just a few um, years ago. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wish, I, you're, you're nice. You're sweet. Um <laughs> Starting to really understand that, I think one of the big breakthroughs is realizing that um, one of the things I started implementing, how could I describe this? Uh, Managing my own mistakes and kind of realizing that it's okay to lose points if you're playing the right type of point and someone hits a really good shot. And it was almost like, for me, it it was this weird sensation of like, I'm not doing anything, but I'm winning points. And so what that meant was like, you know, maybe just going cross court longer and not trying to go down a line. If I'm on the run and someone's putting pressure on me, making them hit an extra volley or uh, an extra ball. And 
just starting to win matches where it's like, I don't feel like I'm having to go for winners or go for big shots as much. Um, and, and realizing and having that kind of like, whoa, in the back of your head, realize like, and so my personal game style, my personality on the court is aggressive. So it's like learning to tone that or, or take that back a notch to give myself a chance to win points instead of almost forcing the issue and creating too many mistakes where I would cause myself more grief than I needed to. Gotcha. That's really good stuff, man. Really good stuff. So at some point, obviously, you you decided to not pursue um, a, but keep pursuing a pro career. So how did you come to that decision? And then how, you know, maybe how tough was it? Oh, brutal. I was in Spain and I was playing and training and stuff. And it's just realizing um, how many good players are out there. I mean, I was playing a tournament where it was like, I think, like, what's his name? Um, Fernando Vicente used to be like a top 20 player, top 30 player. His twin brother was playing a tournament and just toying with people. Like, I mean, he's saying drop shots off for like returns and just walking away. I mean, he was just that much better than everybody else. And you kind of like, man, he would do the same to me. But it was just that, that as I started playing more international, you saw droves and droves of, of guys that weren't even trying to go pro, just really good. And the the factor of just like staying out there. I mean, if you really want to make it, you have to be able to stay out there, which means finances. You have to be able to stay out there and travel. I was getting better, but not at the rate that my kind of like financial burn was yeah. um, sustainable. Because I was I was pretty much doing it on my own. I come back and work for a little bit, go out and train uh, or go out and play. And then it's just those two didn't match up long enough. And so... I think one of the big things for a tennis player, especially if you play college tennis or a lot of juniors college tennis, it becomes a a really big portion of your identity. And you almost feel like, what, what am I going to do without tennis? Like out there and like trying to, you know, play futures and, and maybe, uh, um, challengers, but it's like, dude, you're like 30. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta let go. Um, but yeah, it comes to that realization. It's like, okay, you're not going to be on TV playing tennis, but it doesn't take away from the the feeling or the importance of you playing tennis. You can still have a purpose within tennis without having it be that I'm ranked such and such in the world or or whatnot. And I think that's that was a a, a length of time where I had to learn that because it was like your self worth almost gets caught up in like what's your ranking compared to like hey, regardless of my ranking, I enjoy playing tennis and this is something that that's fun for me. And it doesn't have to be that I have to be the best player in the world to, to enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, that, that's really huge. I remember speaking, uh, you know, very recently I'm trying to remember the guests that I had. Um, but we talked about just the mental game and, and one of the biggest problems is that, uh, you know, we, we, as players, we like, if we lose and that's like, just, it's like, we're a worse person because we yeah. just, just because we lost, um, you know, a tennis match. So uh, I, I think that's something that, uh, that people have to look out for, uh, for sure. So in regards to, uh, I kind of want to switch to like adult development, uh, and talk about that because that's, that's obviously really huge in terms of, um, uh, you know, <coughs> the subject of this, but also, you know, there's so many adult players out there, USTA, you know, they want to get that, that uh, exponential growth, like we talk about, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you know, these players, they're three, five, they want to make four five, but they're not able to, um, you know, it takes them such a long time. So, I mean, yeah. first off, why do adult players tend to stagnate uh, or improve very slowly over time? 
I think, I think it stems from the sequence of how they start learning a lot of times. If I'm just looking at this from like a technical perspective and, um, a lot of times I think adults, um, usually, and I would say the, the format is like, you go out, you take a group lesson and you go out and they're like, Hey, make a tea and get your racket back. And then, uh, you learn to kind of like swing with your arm. And so you kind of get caught up in a little bit of, and this is just a kind of one stage of, at least I think about it. They get caught up in like, Oh, I'm going to swing my arm, but they don't learn the rest of the technique, like how to use your body. So usually the problem with that, kind of the dirty problem with this is that you can make balls. If you're a two five, you're three Oh, and you're just kind of poking balls out. And if you can poke enough balls in, you're like, man, I'm winning. But then you hit three five and you're like, Whoa, they got a little bit more pace on the ball. Right. Whoa, they can do more things. And me poking the ball is not working. And so they never learn to kind of like use their body to generate pace. They never learn how to those fundamental things. And I think for me, the difference between like, if you work with a junior and you have this vision for them or, if they if they want to go to college or you have to iron out those things in the beginning you can't just let a junior player kind of go out and poke balls and maybe he wins at 12s but then he you know he's going to get crushed at like 16s and 18s you're just going to laugh at him but i don't think that perspective is taken enough in adults and so in the beginning it's like hey yeah you know you're poking you're having fun but then you get trapped between that 30 three, five area. And if you're lucky, you got to be, I would think a really good athlete to kind of crack four Oh, but it's really hard to do there just kind of poking the ball or you, you wind up with these big, massive, weird techniques. Like I call it homebrew, homebrew tennis. <laughs> um, and so I think there's just a big thing where adults don't learn those core fundamentals. Um, and so, but those core fundamentals catch up with them later. And so a lot of people just get stuck there. And then you, what they try to do is like patch over like cool tricks. Like I'm going to do this tip. And it's like, yeah, you're doing that tip, but the rest of everything isn't working to even let that tip happen. And so that's, I think one of the biggest things of kind of coming back and working day in day out with adults. It's like, actually it's been super fun to kind of go, Oh shoot. Like you, you're not even like using your body or you're, you're not doing this and this and then show them how to do that and watch their, like their face light up and go, why hasn't anyone shown me this before? Um, but yeah, I think that's the the difference of why certain players get stuck. And it's like this long, like we talk to players and like, I've been a three, five for like five years. It's like, I came up and they just hit that point. And you, I watch them play. I'm like, Oh, okay. I understand. <laughs> and they have a lot of these fundamental kind of flaws. And then the players, it's even harder because now they have something to lose if they're going to make changes. And so you, you get to that like four oh level, you're like, Hey, you know what? You know, you could have a great serve if you just adjust your grip this much. And they're like, ah, oh. but I get it. I totally get it because I was working with uh, a student the other day and he was like, Hey, Kevin, um, I watched a video of myself serving and like my arms, not all the way up. Like, what do you think? I was like, well, do you know, I want to know the truth. He's like, yeah. He's like, well, you've got to kind of weigh what's the cost. This is like, we were working on things like his racket face at contact force. So what are you willing to pay to have that arm straight? Because in a junior sense, I could say, yeah, we're, we have to work on that, but you're going to lose for the next month. You got to be okay with that. And the junior knows I have this huge long career uh, that I, I can get away with it. Adult, they may not want to do that. It's finding those kind of high leverage points to work on that are fundamentally strong that allow them to do the things to get them to move through the level without completely sometimes having to, to overhaul everything.
Yeah, 100%. Uh, I mean, you know, a lot of people are a victim of this. I can remember when I was a junior, too. And like I got I started to get into this style of just like um, getting every ball back, waiting for mistakes to happen on the other side. And then, you know, I feel like that was just all results oriented because I wanted to just win, win, win. Yeah. yeah. This is what you talked about, where you were process oriented um and that you know that's the way to improve uh is to just kind of shove aside if you will the the winning part and just focusing on long term of where do you want to be uh later on and like how do you want your game to be and then you just focus on that so that's really excellent that i think all adult players should be doing so i feel like when we were when you were discussing like you know this topic like it seemed to more be on the the technical side but i'm curious um if you've got strategy technique fitness the mental game like what what which ones are those or which one are we supposed to be focusing on like the most if we're uh, an adult player, you know, like a three, five or so, yeah. and we want to move forward. It's a really tough question, um, but I'm going to break it down this way because they're all really important. And without some of the, the foundations of like having certain things, it's hard to build something else on it. So if you're a three, five, let's say, and you're stuck, you're like, man, my game is just stuck here. What would be the first thing? First thing I would probably say is like, let's look at how consistent you are. How many balls can you make? Because like, if you can't make your balls, then we can't even start there. And then I work on like, okay, how well do you place the ball? That's the next kind of waypoint. And then once we get to like, you can consistently make enough balls. And I don't mean like, hey, you need to make like 30 balls. If you can make 10 balls decently consistent, which if you know what to focus on, it's not super hard. Then it's like, okay, once I got the consistency in placement, I can start implementing some strategy. And I think one of the things, especially until you probably get, at least I think, to 4-0, strategy is more about execution than doing some elaborate plan to mm-hmm. like manipulate the other player. I, I think so many times players are like, dude, okay, I need to do this like, like drop shot and lob. I'm like, no, you just need to get it in that spot a couple of times and then run around and get it in that spot a couple of times. And so we overcomplicate the situation. Most points are won because someone makes a mistake. And generally, it's the person who's hitting the ball who's obviously making the mistake. And so I think until you get to like 4-0, learn certain patterns to use. Like have your patterns. Like I have my patterns that I can adjust for different styles that I play. But it's like they're like every time. I know I'm going to, if I'm playing, unless you have a like a phenomenal back and I'm going to serve you out wide, run around inside out forehand. I'm going to punish that forehand for a while. And so I get my ball in the sh- middle of the court and then I'm going to, I, I practice these things. And so I think by understanding what you do best, you can then set up patterns that execute their work best for you. And that trims down on all the things you need to practice. Cause so many people are like, I got to practice all this. Like, well, your serves. Okay. Get solid on that. But you need to practice these other things to work with your patterns. And so you have this collection of patterns that you use, and you also know how to flex them around for players that are a little bit different. And that's what you wind up focusing on. Instead of, I think a lot of three, five go out and they practice like random stuff is like, okay, I'm just going to, I got to practice this because this is this is this is this. Instead of going, what do you need to practice for your specific game? Uh, when you know that it cuts down on a lot of the having too many choices. You think you need to do this and this one. It's like, you just need to do that and that. So I think the more you can really cut down on the, the choices and narrow it down so you can practice those specific things, the better you're going to get at executing that and the better results you're going to have in a match. Because if you can execute a certain shot 
and make your opponent come up with winners. I mean, that's really tough. And I think that's, that's what's important. So you get to another level. And I, I was, lastly, I would say this, the, the saying that comes to my mind is like, what got you here isn't maybe going to get you to the next point. And so a lot of times, like we were talking about with consistency in the beginning, consistency is important, but consistency isn't going to just by itself get you to be a four O. So it's like, you got to work on the consistency, but that's not going to get you the next thing. The placement, the developing a weapon, developing all these things and stacking it on top. And that's how you break through to that four O four five level because you have all these things put together. Yeah. I love it. A lot of great stuff in there. I mean, you know, generally it's like whenever people have too many things to decide on, they just decide on nothing and then no improvements are made. So, I mean, I really love this approach of basically, you know, you're saying, you know, figure out your, your game style, your strengths, and then create patterns based on that. Um, and then that'll narrow down what you have, uh, what you need to focus on or what you need to practice. And then I guess, you know, with that, maybe if, if there's some other, some patterns that you think would really benefit you, but then you like technically need to improve to be able to execute those. That's yeah. when you kind of put that in there, the technique. Development. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I think that's where the cycle comes where, you understand what your game is, what you want to do. You start practicing, you go out and play a match. And then what's going to happen is you're going to either win or lose. If you're winning, those patterns are working. If you start losing, then you come back to the table and go, what happened? Did I not execute or did they do something that I wasn't prepared for? Which then in turn now like tells you what you need to practice on. And then you take those things and rehearse until you get those things right. And then you come up against something new. And that's the cycle. That's like what developing a player is, is helping them go through that cycle over and over again so you can get to higher and higher levels of tennis. Yeah, for sure. Just curious, do you, do you have your students like do any writing down or anything uh, of like, you know, notating their improvements? Cause I feel like maybe, I don't know, I guess if it's really simplified, then you don't, you may not have to write it down, but I, maybe for some that would be helpful. I'm just curious of your approach. Um, currently, no. I mean, juniors, I would maybe have them writing down adults. I haven't had lately. Um, but in a sense, I've tried to keep everything really, really simple. Um, yeah. I like using analogies with technique and my process of kind of teaching like singles, especially until you get to like the four oh four five level is pretty like it's a standard kind of thing where you have very few options, but you focus on executing those and you have the ability to kind of blend it for your game. But it's, like, it's mostly I want to keep everything as simple as possible because I think complexity just leads to more mistakes and more like options that you don't need. Yeah. hundred percent. As far as the, uh, so kind of to get into like your, your training style, I was wondering what mix of like hand feeding versus live drills and other things. Like, I guess when you want to, let's say establish or work on these patterns, like what, what's the best type of, um, way to go about it in terms of like the, the actual training, uh, methods. Um, I usually use a mix of all like hand feeding, um, racket feeding and live. How it works is for me in a general sense is like, first of all, if you have the technique, we're just going to assume you have the technique to hit the shot. Then I want to do some hand feeding to make sure you can execute the pattern. Um, after that, I'll go to some uh, feeding, but then right around feeding or even around hand feeding, I think one really important thing is to add accountability because the number one thing I hear players say is like, ah, I practice awesome. I did all these drills and it's so amazing. And then you go out and match and it's like, it didn't work. <laughs> and I think one of the biggest issues with uh, when you practice, if you don't, 
practice like you're playing that it's not going to show up. And what's the difference between you playing is that you're accountable to everything. The score keeps you accountable and that creates pressure. And so when I'm hand feeding, it might be simple, like you have to hit six balls past the service line or whatever, depending on the level. I mean, if this just in the beginning, I'm like, you have to hit six balls in that location. Then it might be, you have to hit six balls in that location past the service line. And then I'm add some more movement to that hand feeding, but I'm slowly stacking on more and more pressure. And then I jump over to the other side of that and do the same thing. So while I'm giving them just enough challenge, I'm also increasing the amount of pressure. Mm. So at the point where if we're doing a live ball situation, it may be like where it's like, hey, the goal might be just hypothetically, if you have to go two balls cross, then I hit one down the line, they're back in down the line and you get a short ball. If you miss any one of those balls, we stop and then we do it over again. Um, if you, you know, and so it's this constant thing of adding on enough accountability and pressure because then when you go into a match, you're like, this is normal. I've been training to like hit the ball in. Cause I think a lot of times it's easy to go out, especially, you know, with an adult or somebody or just as a coach and you're like, Oh, it's okay. You missed the ball. It's just a little wide, no big deal. But what happens is when they go on the match, the brain goes, well, I've been training. Like it's no big deal. Why should it be a big deal here? <laughs> And so that's the difference of how you get the results in the match. It's like you have to train that way. You have to train with accountability. Um, and, and there's different levels of accountability. So that's how I would go. It's like hand feeding with accountability, racket feeding with accountability, lie ball with accountability. And I just keep stacking the accountability to it gets to a level where like, man, playing a match would be easier. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Very nice. So so when you get to that highest level of accountability and training, and then you shift to the match, like, it, would you say there's pretty much like a, a very small gap in in that level, so that you there's not a ton of like uh, difference there, um, where yeah, you can I think, shift, yeah, yeah, no, I think that's the whole idea is like instead of going from uh, training where there's very little accountability to the match and it's this huge leap, you're trying to stair step your uh, your student up to the here or even like trying to get it even, and so you. It, you have that ability when you're feeding a, a, a point to them because you can make it infinitely harder or more difficult than they might have to play and say, okay, I'm going to bounce feed or top spin feed and move you back and move you in. And you have to make all the balls. And if you don't, I'm going to keep going. The uh, situation where like the brain's going to go like this and you have to do it with enough um, acuity not to try to break somebody. I think sometimes coaches get in there like, oh, you're going to run until you break. Um, but it's just sensing where they are. And some players, you know, they might get to this that day and you you hang out for that day. You come back and you start continuing. It's not like um, like every day. It's just like this hardcore training where it's like, I'm going to kill my students. But it's they do feel the pressure, but they appreciate it because they they feel like they're getting better. They And I think the other thing is rewarding. Like if... If I go out and hit with a, a pro or something, and it's like I hit cross courts, I've missed some, I made some, you know, whatever. And you go home, and you're like, okay, I did cross courts. But if like you hit with someone, you're like, I made this many balls, this situation, this many times. It helps your brain go, I accomplished something. I did something that you can tangibly say, I did this compared to like, yeah, I hit cross courts. Going to a match, your brain is like, oh, well, I hit cross courts and half of them were out, half of them were in. Right. Compared to like, yeah, I've been doing this. I hit 30 balls in my last practice session. Accountable. I can do this in a match. And so it helps bridge that gap. Yeah, 100% there. Um, 
<laughs> when you were talking about like the hardcore training, uh, just reminded me. Do, do you know of uh, David Goggins by any chance? Ah, oh, I love <laughs> David Goggins. Can't hurt me. I feel like somebody told you to ask Kevin about David Goggins. I'm <laughs> such a David Goggins fan. So oh, you like, are I awesome. Just, I just want to turn and be like, yeah, yeah, if you're not playing tennis, <laughs> you're not hard. That's you're right. Hard. Yeah. There's a, <laughs> there was this clip of like a fan question where the fan question was like, hey, David, did you train today? And he like laughs hysterically. He's like, you, he asked me if I trained today. <laughs> like, because, you know, he's, he's hardcore. So, but yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, can't hurt me is a great book for sure, but, uh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So slightly in aside, but it, it's relevant as well. So <laughs> on the topic of being hardcore, actually, um, I'm curious to know what the highest level of, uh, of training looks like, uh, or, or what that accountability is, because, you know, in my mind, I guess it's a practice match, but so is it pretty much just a practice match where, you know, you, you win or lose the match or is there anything else involved? Cause I'm wondering if like students could, you know, maybe they're playing that practice match and they're like, I guess they don't really, they're not as intense cause it's a practice match. So I'm wondering how the accountability should be in, in that, with that level. I mean, there's so many things you can, depending on your, your kind of the, the, how close the two people are, you can play for something. I mean, yeah. we, we either have kids play for something, play for lunch, play, put something. It doesn't have to be crazy. It's just, there has to be something that can be lost. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes people play practice matches and they walk away. It's like, uh, okay, no big deal. I'll play you next week right. compared to, oh, I, I'm, we're playing for lunch. Like, hey, let's go out. We're going to play. Whoever loses buys the other person lunch. There's skin in the game. There's mm-hmm. like something where like, man, um, so I think that's one thing. Um, sometimes we, we would make juniors in this. This is hard. You play a set where you have to win two points for it to equal one. Mm. And so it makes it infinitely longer, but it definitely can turn up your focus. And you have to kind of know also a little bit about yourself, like what, what's going to motivate you. But it definitely, in some sense, some sort of skin in the game you have to have, I think, to make a practice match accountable because... It, you could play a practice match and it means nothing, you, you know? And so unless you have something that you feel like you can gain from winning this or lose from um, losing it, then, you know, you're kind of like, ah, I'll just walk away and play next week. So at the highest level of at least the juniors uh, I've worked with in the past, that's the thing we started doing. It's like, but point for them, there's already skin in the game. There's, there's um, status. It's like who beat who. I don't want anybody to know I lost to that person. And so they're they've already kind of got to this point. Where it's like, man, I want to you know I want to crush you or I want the score to be like this. I can't I can't. I'm supposed to kill this person and it's like like five four. Oh my god. There's all these different things that are showing up for them um, because they have this future ideal of what they want to accomplish and 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 kind of the pecking order. Um, but if you don't have that, it's like create it for yourself and it doesn't have to even, I mean, you could put a Gatorade, bring a Gatorade and like, Hey, we're going to play for this Gatorade, whatever, just something. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I'm, I, I know for a fact that you and Ian like would play for stacks of cash. Like, isn't that, is that right? Stacks, stacks, and stacks. <sighs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I knew. Yeah, it. totally. I mean, it, it's, it's, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. I mean, if, you guys are ballers. So yeah, we enjoy, and we're both competitive. I mean, even if it wasn't like playing for something, it's just playing for pride. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm wondering though. You you mentioned like the uh, the juniors who like I guess they you know they don't want to lose to somebody and, and everything. Uh, 
for status purposes. Is that, could that ever be a detriment? Cause I remember, uh, when I was playing in juniors and I would almost like, I wouldn't want to play somebody and I would be like afraid to lose to them. Like, I don't know. Uh, is there like a, a difference there maybe in the approach? Like, oh no, I think it's, um, it's the same. I think the difference is coaching players, whatever level, because this happens for adults too. I mean, I'm, I'm, I know for sure. Talk to adults like, ah, I don't want to lose or ladies, are, I don't want to lose that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's at every level. And I think it's, it's, it's different at every level um, with kids trying to separate uh, what's going on, like their identity from tennis. Like if I lose that person, I'm an awful person. I'm an awful tennis right, right. player. Um, adults just, I mean, I don't know. I think it's the same way in the sense of just like looking past that. But I mean, it can be both good and bad. It can, it can be motivate you or it could completely kind of tear you down. And so I think it's really important to understand what does motivate you. I'm very motivated by the challenge. You know, if, if, if I know there's something on the line, I perform better. I almost would put, so, I would jokingly quick story. Uh, whenever I play my roommate and we were always playing for the line, uh, like on our, our team, he call a ball, um, out and I'm like, are you serious? That was so in. He's like, dude, what are you talking about? So I completely knew it. I was like, I was like, are you going to be like that? Are you going to really make that call? Okay. It's on. And talking about, and slightly it was to get in his head, but it's also, it's like, you know what? I've got something, it's on, it's something to play for. So I know yeah, that yeah. for me, that's not for everybody, but it's just like finding that trigger and knowing what that is for you is super important. What gets you to compete at that higher level? Some people are a little bit more up, they need more intensity and some people don't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's huge. You got to really learn your, you know, what ticks. And I mean, I've re- relatedly, I was listening to, to Tim Ferriss is a great podcaster and he was just saying as well, like, you know, he, he used to, uh, for example, like get pissed off, like certain things would trigger him to get really mad and all that, but he had to learn like what those triggers actually were, examine them and then figure out like how they're, you know, what they produce in him and then how to, how to maybe mitigate. So just generally, you know, being introspective yeah. is, is really helpful. Curious to, uh, maybe one last question on adult development for now, at least is, um, what mix in your mind of competition versus, versus training is, is ideal. Uh, and you know, do, do we need to avoid, um, you know, big tournaments like when we're making a big change? This is always a tough one. Um, because it's different for different people and it's different for your personality. I think this is where it still comes up because um, even working at essential tennis, we would talk to people and sometimes there's this idea of like, okay, you need to just stop playing everything. You need to just like do some progressions. And then it's like, no, 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 you don't. And so it's you, I think first you start with where's your joy. Mm. If you're the type of player that enjoys playing, don't put yourself in a situation where you can't play. Like, so maybe tone down what you're going to work on to a small enough chunk where you can still go play and it's not going to bother you, but you can enjoy what brings you joy in tennis. Because the whole idea is, at least I think for a lot of adults is they enjoy tennis. I enjoy tennis. And so I want to feel that enjoyment. But if I'm taking it out of that better to improve, to somehow go back and enjoy where I always enjoying it, it's like, like, uh, so that was always the thing I think we started to start with for after a while of talking to people. It's like, where's your, where's your enjoyment? Is this big enough of 
where you're going to make this change, but you're going to have to maybe take some time off for something that and come back and maybe be better. Is that going to be okay? And so you have to weigh that for every player, but definitely I think is starting with where's your joy. If you understand where your joy is, if you like playing, then make some smaller changes and still play or maybe tone down how much you play. Um, if it's something you really need to know you need to do, maybe take a couple weeks off and then work on it. If you're the type of person who loves working on stuff. I love both. I love working on stuff, but I ultimately want to work on it to have it show up in a match. So I, I want to compete too, but I do get that, you know, sometimes you do have to like really work on stuff. Um, I switched from a, a two handed backhand to a one handed backhand and that was kind of just rough. But in my mind, I was like, you know, I don't care. I was okay with competing and losing. And so I would lose to everybody, but I was just like hitting one handed backhands all the time until it got better. Yeah, now that's huge. I think I was it Sampras or I was interviewing um <laughs> keep forgetting all my guests, but it might have been Jeff Salzenstein who like he played oh, Sampras or, or some like yeah, uh, Jeff uh friends with him and and so basically Sampras like he lost really bad. He was in the process of switching to a uh, yeah. one-hander, but like he just smirked at his opponent cuz you know, he didn't really care. Like he knew that that was going to bring him to the next level. So uh yeah, it's kind of good to hear that mentality there. So curious about the serve. I mean, I, I was looking at my uh, survey results uh, just just on like what people want to see on this upcoming summit that's in uh, mid-April, and they were a huge amount of uh, of requests on the serve. So I was wondering, you know, you're obviously extremely experienced in both online and you know uh, just clubs and, and teaching on the court, uh, and you see a lot of serves from uh, adult players and other players. So. What part of the serve do you see most adult players um, struggle with? And then what's the solution to that particular problem? Oh, it would definitely be the grip. Mm. Um, having where they have the, the, like the, usually like it's like a Eastern forehand to semi-Western forehand is going after the serve. Um, mm, those pancakes. Yum. The pancakers. <laughs> Gotta love those pancakers. <laughs> right i love pancakes me too um but i think the thing is first of all where i found success is first of all explaining to adults why i think this is something maybe some coaches just it's like oh you need to switch the script and they're like okay and you put them in a confident grip they look at you like how the heck is this thing supposed to hit the ball right but explaining why like um uh here should have had a, one prepared, but I got, I got my son's little racket out here. Nice. But it's just explaining that like, okay, the whole problem with the pancake or grip is that as the racket approaches or the strings approach the ball, most of the strings are pointing up. And it, so it leaves very little margin for uh, a player to have success creating spin and then explain like, okay, so obviously, but it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. If I, if you never, if I never play tennis, I'm like, okay, look, I want the ball to go that way. I want the strings to point that way. Right. This should make sense. And in the beginning, it does. And then you, people are like, dude, but the balls, I want to hit it that way, but the strings are going that way. That doesn't make sense. But then when you start showing them how to do it. And so my biggest thing when I, I get a pancaker in, usually I don't switch it all the way to confidential because that's just too big of a, a, a switch like we were talking about. Halfway, probably to somewhere like a soft Eastern, they can still hit a slice serve. And so my biggest thing is getting them actually to grip up with a racket. If it was a full-size racket, we'd still grip up like this. Go up to the net, and I just have them brush the ball. And usually everybody can do that. So if you grip up, they're just brushing the ball. And they get the sensation like, whoa, I can swing this way 
and the ball goes that way. And I think that's the other big thing. It's just like players not used to having a different swing path from where the racket face is facing, meaning that they're used to like, okay, the racket and the strings go all together. So that doesn't make sense that I'm going to swing this way, but the ball's going to go that way. They think, oh, the ball's going to go this way. And so once you get them to understand that they can swing this way and create spin, but as long as they have the strings facing this way, it'll go in the direction they want. They start developing this motion to brush the ball, which means now if you were in that pancake grip, it gets really hard to brush the ball this way. And they start buying in because like, oh, I, I understand this. And you've given me a tool by gripping up to do it. And then I'll literally have them working their way back from probably two or three feet away from the net, hitting the box. And we'll just keep going back. By the time we get to the service line, I have them start gripping down the racket. They're doing the same thing. We work our way back. We keep adjusting the racket face. And it gives them the sensation and awareness of what my racket face is doing and what my path needs to be. And so when you do that and you work them back, they're like, oh. And then they'll start self-correcting because they're like, mm. I've had a lady and she was like, oh yeah, I can't, they'll, they'll understand now. I was like, I can't create spin this way. <laughs> You're going to break your wrist over there. There's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, it's not working. But then they'll make the correction themselves because they're like, okay, well, I need the rack to go this way now because I know this is the spin I want. And so that's probably my biggest thing where I, I probably focus on a lot if they have the pancake grip is getting them to start right up at the net or brushing and I don't even care about the follow through. Like, you know, I'm not even going to pay a lot of attention to this until we start getting more comfortable. And probably around the service line or a little bit before that, I'll start saying, okay, now you feel comfortable. Now it needs to come back around to your finish. I just want them to get that sensation of spin and then start building on that. And then they go back to the baseline and their whole paradigm of the serve switches. And then they have this ability of like going, oh, so I can place it just by adjusting racket face, but I can have my racket path create spin. And so, yeah. I think that's probably the biggest thing where I see um, players really struggle with, but it's a big opportunity if they can switch that. That's a huge opportunity that you can start learning that idea of the concept of the path being different from where the racket faces in a sense. Yeah, I love it. And again, the hero here is progression, just like how we talked about it um, previously with, uh, you know, introducing different levels of accountability gradually, you know, you've got this here where you, you go up to the net, you, you choke up on the racket um, with the continental grip, and then you, you feel out the, you know, how it actually works and, and, you know, the explanation of why is, is achieved. I've got a, a nice dad joke for you, uh, Kevin. Uh, it's not a question, actually. I'll just say it. Um, I like my serve grip, like my breakfast continental. <laughs> <laughs> I messed up the booyakasha, damn it. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> I hope you like that. I like it. I like Thank it. You. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it. Yeah, and if he's healthy too, man. You just get the fruits and the bagels. Anyway, um, too many carbs. I'm just going off right now. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> no, but I, I love it. Um, I like so, it. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. So as far as um, the serve, there's different serve types, you know. Uh, so if you were to have your students, your let's go with adult players, to, them to focus on one type of serve, uh, you know, that you think would get them the most ROI, return on investment, like what serve would you say they should focus on? Honestly, it'd be, I would choose probably a slice. And I would choose if there's something within a slice placement not even power. Mm. Um, the reason I would choose a slice is because generally it's a lot easier for them to get this swing path going from here. So kind of hard on the camera, flat going this way, slice here, and then kick going this way. Mm. The more the racket has to go away from the direction where you were going to hit the ball, the harder is the time. Hence people having harder times with hitting a kick serve. 
slice is kind of in between the flat and the other thing with the flat is like until they learn to create a little brush generally the flat just turns into super flat mm. instead of like flat with you know being able to add a little spin and so i would say the slice and then focus on racket face angle because it's hard i think a lot of people are caught up in who doesn't love hitting an ace or hitting the ball hard so everybody wants to hit the ball hard but the Overrated. reality of yeah, just kidding, just kidding. the reality of it is, oh, but this is kind of the thing. It's like there's a time for it, but the reality of it, it's hard to do consistently. And so what happens is your first serve percentage drops and you're just digging in and getting in second serves. If you're already not confident in your first serve, then some person's going to throttle your second serve. Yeah. But with that, you can have a pretty uh, fast first serve, but you can place it. And placing it is pretty much, you know, as I've gotten older playing, I've, I've only work on like placement is my big thing. It's like, if I hit a big first serve, it's because I'm just trying to mix it up every once in a while, just to keep you honest, but hey, fool you. Um, but it's all about placing it because I want the ball to come back in a way that I can set up, whether it be doubles or singles. You know, if I can place the ball out wide and singles and set up my forehand, that's what I want. If I can place the serve down the T solid slice, um, and set my partner up, that's what I want, um, compared to trying to go for winners. So that's where I would start with. I really like that. A lot of great points there because I think conventionally, you know, most people may think that the topspin serve w- could be the default there. Uh, you know, obviously it has its merits. You know, you got the the height and um, uh, consistency. Uh, maybe, it, I don't know, maybe it's easier to, to get that serve in more often than, uh, but generally, of course the height is is more present there. Um, but, but like you said, I mean, I had the toughest time, uh, learning the kick serve, uh, for the reasons you mentioned, I, I also found that, you know, I, I was not staying sideways long enough. Um, so a lot of, you know, more complications with the, uh, with the, the Thompson serve than the slice serve. So I think that's a, it's a great point. It's easier to learn for sure. And like, yeah, those wide serves are very tough. I mean, especially against a player like me who has like a little bit more on, on the Western side, not fully, but that forehand grip, it's, it's tough to return balls out wide. And you set, set up the court, like, you know, you're off the returners off the court. Um, so that's a very good choice. Yeah. I think that's also just a mentality switch because it's, when I talk to some players like, Ooh, I'm going to hit this ace. I'm like, and then what? I'm like, what do you mean? What's <laughs> so up, man? Like they, <laughs> they don't think about the next shot. It's just like, right, right. I'm going to hit it hard. It's like, yeah. what are you going to do after that? You mean I got to like plan that? And so I think when you start thinking two or three shots ahead and it changes your mentality, you don't get frozen when like you hit the big ace and it comes back. Yeah. You're like, Oh shoot. You start expecting things to come back. You, you, you want it to come back so you can do the next step. And if it doesn't come back, that's a bonus. But it's like you put your mind in a place of, of expecting what could happen and what might happen based on what I'm going to do. And so it's, it's, a, it's a much easier way to kind of think about like and anticipate things. Um, and I think at every level, you just have to start doing that more and more. I, I played a guy who was really good and it's like I hit a shot. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's not coming back. And I'm like, oh, shoot, that came back. And so at that level, still, like, you got to like, think that everything's going to come back and have that mentality. Yeah, I played really well that time. That was, that was a good one. <laughs> no, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I don't want to take the credit. Uh, so, you can take the credit. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Now, now we got to actually play. Oh, uh, what? <laughs> no, yeah, we actually, now, I would, now we're gonna have I would to love play. to play. It's on. You, it's- you, I can't believe you hooked me on that one. That was out. Everyone. Sorry, man. That was out. Okay. It's on. It's on like Donkey Kong. <laughs> it's on. 
All right. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. No, I, actually, that would be amazing. Uh, yeah, like, it's really cool when, when you see the content creators, like, uh, obviously, Ian, you know, you played Ian, like, on one of those videos. Like, it's pretty cool. I hope we can do that at some point. I think there was also, oh, yeah, the doubles match that you had uh, oh, against yeah, Scott yeah, and yeah. Nate. That was really fun. Scott and like, Nate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was funny. I absolutely played. Here's the inside thing of it. I played <laughs> awful. I did two <laughs> things really well, which uh-huh. was I served really well. Yes, you did. I couldn't hit a return. Um, I don't know if they ever, I don't know if he, he put that. It's like, I was so bad at returning. I did like, if, if you've ever watched the, um, what's the Wolf of Wall Street where he's like mm. doing the chant. Uh, I was uh. like, I got to make this return. And I finally made one. I was like, yes. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was a fun match. It was a fun match. Those guys were cool. And it was, uh, we'd have to do it again sometime. Yeah. 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 That'd be, that'd be great. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's a cool thing about the tennis community in general, you know, like we, we, we help market each other to a large degree and like, you know, we collaborate and like, I'm glad, glad it's like that. Um, yeah, it so, is. Yeah. It's super cool. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully when this, when people can travel more, <laughs> we can try to do something like that. It'd be really cool. Um, so just a little bit on strategy. I'm curious what, uh, cause you know, obviously we, we have to know our game, our strengths, and then build, uh, patterns like, like we mentioned earlier uh, in the show, but what are some biggest strategic mistakes? Perhaps they're quite simple in nature that people can, uh, be more cognizant about and, uh, lim- trying to eliminate. Um, and we can go with singles for if this. You go, okay. If we go past like, okay, obviously, you know, your patterns, um, I think the idea of making sure that you're kind of not losing points and your opponent has to win points, that idea is so, so important. Um, Because I've had so many matches where the person's really hot and I'm not winning per se, but I'm not necessarily losing. Let's say they're up like three, two. And I'm like, but you, you almost get this feeling of the match. Like you just got to keep making balls. They're playing way too well. And then there's this point where it's like, you dig out a ball, they miss it, and you're like, that's it. And it's like, oh, it's just like completely the, the dam breaks open and errors start flying. And I think a lot of players don't realize the undercurrent of matches and the momentum. I think if you could understand momentum, I've been in matches where I, I was up 3-1, I'm like, I'm about to lose. Because <laughs> it's like, I'm playing really, really well, and I'm like, I don't know if I can sustain this. Right, and right. you kind of look over them, like, they're just making balls. And it's just oh, like, man, yeah. it's just going to catch up to you. And so, and there's been matches where I've been down and go, uh, I just got to like stick with it, stick with it. And generally, you know, good things happen. But this idea of making sure you're making your opponent make uh, really good shots. It's just so hard. It's so hard to hit winners on purpose. It's so hard to run over and hit a, a cross-court winner when someone's coming to net. Um, and I don't think people give enough credence to that. They don't like really focus on that. It's like, I have to hit the winner. I have to like make sure they don't get to the ball. And they don't realize how much pressure it is to put on somebody to go like, you have to come up with a shot every time. And so that's the, uh, I would say like mentality looking like just straight on patterns. It really depends on your game. You know, it really mm-hmm. depends on what you like doing. Um, but I would say Craig O'Shaughnessy, I think talks about this, like mm-hmm. really start focusing on how you set up your first four strikes or two strikes of the balls. The first four balls are like, what is it? 67% of points or something. I think yeah, he said. And like so that. what that means is you need to really be good at your serve and your serve plus one. It's like, 
spend a lot of time just like serve, serve plus one, return. And so what a plus one is, uh, if you're not familiar with that term, is serving and then what you're going to do with that next ball. So that's why the serve ball we talked about has a purpose. You're serving out wide to get the forehand and then execute that ball because um, Craig O'Shaughnessy says, I think something like 67% of points are won or lost within the first four strikes of the ball. And that's the serve, uh, return, first forehand or first where, and that's why I think for me, I don't I'm generally subscribe to like, you got to go out and be able to hit like 40 balls in a row. Like that's like, I think it was like seven, 8% of the, the percentage of, of points. Right. Focus on the biggest chunk and how you can increase your placement and increase the ability for you to set up that next shot. I think if players did more of that, they would be more successful, but it's just something so different. Like when's the last time you went out with a coach and you go serve plus one, it's like, Oh, we got 10 minutes left. Hey, why don't you hit some serves? Let's, <laughs> let's wrap this up with some serves. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's something that, that should be brought more to the, 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 the forefront of your practice matches is like surplus one. And you can do it on your, with yourself. You can, I've practiced or had players practice where they can either serve and keep a ball in their pocket or they can shadow the serve and then toss the ball and work on that next ball just to start getting that mentality. And it's like serve and then plus one. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think so. It seemed like Craig's data, if I remember correctly, was pretty singles heavy. Like, I guess, do you think the same principles pretty much apply to doubles? It seems like it would, right? Uh, You know, honestly, to be, I I wouldn't know. I I don't want to say if it does. I think doubles is different because your potential plus one is your your partner. (laughs) And so you serve and your partner's that kind of plus one. So it's like you're serving in a sense to have them create the plus one. And so that's how I would think about it for doubles. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense, man. That makes sense. Um, yeah, Kevin, it's been a great conversation. I know, uh, you know, we've both got stuff to do and all that. Um, but uh, I don't know how much you read, uh, or have read like for tennis books or books in general, but I was, I wanted to ask you of three books that you would gift to a friend to help them, uh, become a better tennis player. And it doesn't have to be necessarily a tennis book. It can be any kind of book. That's deep. <laughs> Caught me yeah. by surprise. <laughs> um, three t- books. They don't have to be tennis. Yeah, they could be, but they don't have to be. Okay. So I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to be all geeky on you. All right. Um, so one book that has nothing to do with tennis, but there's some principles in it that I really, really like. And you could probably find them around not necessarily that book, but is um, Poor Charlie's Almanac. Mm. And so it's a business book and it's the business book of Charlie Munger, who is Warren Warren Buffett's partner. And so what he talks about in there, just to sum it all up, because they're like, whoa, how are we going to find anything related there in tennis is mental models and how he kind of uses these models to filter out things. Mental models I find really, really interesting that can be applied to tennis. It's like things like inversion, the 80-20 principle. I, I literally have written on my wall. Um, uh, what else can we? Sunk costs, uh, I think it's like fallacy. So what 80-20 principle states is that 80% of your results come from 20% of the things you're doing. So I would look for that in my game. Like if I'm playing a match and I have the chance to review it, I would go through the stats or figure out and go, what's... The 20% of things are winning me 80% of my points. I know that. That's my forehand. It's going to be serve forehand. That's going to win me 80% of my points. And then you could even take it and be a little bit almost like recursive about it. It's like, what's the 80-20 of the 80-20? 
and go even deeper. But I would just start with the surface. The other part is something where he's, he always says to, if you want to solve a problem, you must first invert it. And so what that means is solve the problem by asking, how would you be, how would you turn the problem on its head? So it's like, hey, Mirabon, you want to become a great tennis player, right? So I would say, Mirabon, how would you become a horrible tennis player? What are the things you would do to become a horrible tennis player? And so it was like, well, I wouldn't make balls. And so, uh, well, I would uh, make sure I don't run for balls or I'm not fit. So all these things you come up with it are the list of things you got to make sure you stop doing. That becomes your stop doing list. And so a lot of times when we think about the goal, we think about like, hey, I want to go accomplish this. I want to hit a bigger forehand. Yeah, I'm going to hit a bigger forehand. But you never stop doing the stop doing list. So you continue to retry to go for the goal, but you're still having all those bad habits. If you do just the stop doing list, there's a bigger chance of you probably hitting your success than if you try to just go for the goal for getting the stop doing list, if that makes any sense. And so um, there's a myriad of all these different like mental models he uses that I, I apply to my teaching. I apply to like when I try to make content about asking myself different questions and looking at from different angles to find out answers. Uh, trying to think of another book. Another, uh, and yeah, probably most of these aren't very business or uh, tennis books. Um, Principles by Ray Dalio. Great book. Another business book. Yeah. Um, I like how he talks about pain. What is it? Pain and reflection equals evolution. Yeah. And so when you look at your tennis game, it's like, what's causing you the most pain? And like going in that direction and figuring out how can I deal with that? Because that's the only way you're going to get to the next level. It's like, it's like solving that pain point. And that pain is a signal. Don't take it as something personal solving that pain point and moving forward with it. So if you suck at volleys, you might just really need to like break it down and figure out like, how can I get better? Or at least bring up that part of my game. He talks about, and I, they both talk about it. You'll, you'll see a lot of similarities, first principles. Um, and I think this is huge. Like what's the first principles of tennis? And I, I love asking people this, like, what's the, like, what would be Mirban? You're on the spot now. Oh what's, what's, what's the two or three most important things about hitting a tennis ball? Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, positioning, um, using your, uh, kinetic chain and, um, focusing on, this is kind of two, but like focusing on the, the ball plus like what your opponent is doing kind of thing. Okay. So I would dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And mm. the whole question is like, why you would ask yourself why, and what I've come up with is like the kinetic chain is important, but the racket face, like mm. the Interaction between the ball and the racket face is probably what I think is one of the most important things because that will signal or tell the ball what to do. Like you can have a broken down mm. ghetto kinetic chain. <laughs> That's true. The racket face will go where you want it to go. And so it's, it's like if you want to increase your consistency, it really comes down to your racket face. Like even if you don't have a great kinetic chain. Now, if you want to have more racketed speed, that's when we start adding in the kinetic chain. But so I'll ask players, like, they'll hit a ball in the net. I'm like, why'd the ball go in the net? And they're like, well, my shoulders were, or my hips were, like, weird. And I'm like, and I'll literally turn backwards, hit a ball <laughs> under my legs and hit it. And they're like, okay, so, yeah, your shoulders were completely jacked there. And I had nothing to do with what the ball is going to do. Right. And then I get them to break it down. I'm like, oh, shoot, my racket face. Now, do I think the hips and stuff and everything else adds into the racket face? Yeah, it relates to that. So how you're, if I'm thinking about, I need to get this racket face, well, your body's going to have to be in position. Um, 
your kinetic chain is going to have the, have the time to get there. But it starts with that. And so that's why I say like looking through like those mental models of like first principles, what's the kind of, I think Elon Musk calls it reasoning from like the, the cause instead of analogy. So, and I think that's really important in tennis um, because there's so many things that get just passed down. It's like, well, good players do this because they're that. And you're like, no one ever kind of asks the question because you're like, oh, this person told me and they're really good. So that must be it. And it's really easy to get caught up in this sitting going like, why? Mm. And they're like, uh, whoa, uh, it, but <laughs> asking that and going deeper. And so if you're ever in a tennis lesson, um, ask why, like ask why and ask why more than once. Cause tennis player, tennis coaches and myself included sometimes it's a good exercise for people to ask why. And then they ask why again, cause it really makes you understand if they understand what's going on and maybe even helps the coach go like, I need to figure that out. But I think those are, um, what, two books right there. Mm. Um, I mean, it's the classic, um, the inner game of tennis. Mm. I always like that one. Um, mm. it's a great mental book about how to communicate with yourself, how to kind of like, uh, put yourself in that kind of flow state, uh, that I find is super, super important. These are really good books. And, uh, I think this, uh, you know, one of the best summarizations of the books as well that, that I've had, um, a lot of great stuff in here and, uh, yeah, well you, everybody can, can check out the show notes page for links to all of these books. Um, sweet. Uh, one last substantive question I would say, well, maybe I think, uh, is if, if you could, <laughs> if you could, um, write a message on a billboard, um, in the most highly trafficked city where it's erected on that particular uh, road, what would you say, or what would you have the billboard say? Mm. Deep again. <laughs> deep, so deep, Mirvan. I know. Um, live in the present. Mm. I like it. Why? I think for tennis, if you want to play your best, you have to be in the present. And if you want to enjoy life, you have to be in the present. And what that means is we spend so much of our time thinking about the things we want or the things that have happened to us and we're not in the actual moment of, of living life, whether it be on the tennis court, like you play a point, you're like, man, that, that forehand sucked. And you're, you're walking up to the service line, like, oh God, I hope I don't do that again. And then you miss it because you're not even there. And then you're like, God, oh, see, I did that again. And literally you're bouncing back and forth between like, oh, this is going to suck. I'm going to lose. And See all the shots I hit instead of just going, you know what? This is a new moment right here now. I'm just going to stay here and just be in that moment. And um, it's a constant thing that I try to maybe bring back. It's like take a moment when I come home and it's like I get out of the car and it's like I stop and I look up at the stars for like 30 seconds just to yeah. be present um, just because um, time is short and uh, you can spend your whole life uh, kind of thinking about all the things you want and not enjoying the things you have. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, stay in the present. It's a great one. I also feel like you could be a great voice actor. Like I really like that whiny voice that you just did. <laughs> that was really good. That was okay. Really good. I'm going to have really to, I'm going to have to listen to it later. Cause I'm like, Whoa, what, what, what's he talking yeah, about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just like when you were like, Oh, I missed the forehand. I was, I was, I don't yeah. know. I enjoyed that. I don't know why, okay. but, uh, <laughs> save that one. 
Yes. Um, so Kevin, you know, you obviously do a lot of great work with total tennis domination. You're, you're around like, I forget, like 40, over 40 some thousand subscribers. Um, and you know, people really need to check out your stuff. I mean, as I mentioned in the intro, you know, you've been on the tennis summits too, and done some great presentations there. So where can people, you know, check out your stuff, follow you and and so forth? Yeah. Uh, definitely at totaltennisdomination.org and obviously on YouTube. Um, that's where I release YouTube videos. I'm in the process of doing a lot of different stuff. I think um, it was really cool that the, the subject matter of kind of getting stuck between 3.0 and 3.5 is something I really want to focus on just because um, in recent of coming back to Oklahoma, I've just I worked with those players so much and it's like glaringly obvious like, okay, so many of them, it's like the same problem over and over again, um, technically, strategically, and just needing to know like, what do I need to work on at this level and then this level and this level and creating a map for people of how to move through it. So it's not this kind of like you hit that 3-0 and it's like you're in a dark room and you're like, just like, <laughs> where's the door? Right. Where's the three five four zero door? <laughs> um, so yeah, that's what I've uh, kind of in the, in the lab uh, working on creating. Yeah. Very good. So any social media profiles that you, uh, Oh yeah. Facebook group. Uh, if you look us up on Facebook and Instagram, we're going to get the Instagram going. Gram is, Gram's got to get, got to pick up some steam. It's got to right, get the gram going. Get on, get on the stories, those reels. Yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're, you're on the gram. I'm going to have to say, take some gram lessons. That's right. A gram at a time. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I got <laughs> This is good. I like it. I like it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Dad jokes, man. I love them. Awesome, man. Well, I mean, this has been really, really great and I really do appreciate your time a lot. And, um, yeah, I just look forward to connecting in the future very soon, but, um, you know, everybody go to total tennis domination.org also total tennis domination on YouTube. Uh, you will thank yourself if you check out the videos. They're really good. Um, I've always been impressed with Kevin's work, uh, and Megan's too. So, um, yeah, for sure. So yeah, Kevin, that's, that's it, I guess for this episode, but I really appreciate you coming on and look forward to, uh, chatting again soon. Yeah, it's been awesome. I appreciate your time and let me come on and talk to the peeps. That's right. That's right. Spreading the knowledge. We appreciate Spreading that. the knowledge. Dropping yeah, it. That's right. Dropping it like it's hot. Great song. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> All right. We'll end on a uh, rap <laughs> reference there uh, on a tennis uh, podcast. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mervon. Take care. Thanks, you too. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.